Hey, we're doing this series, Moving On, and it's for a reason. Uh, there are thousands of people here at New Spring, and we hear their stories, and, and many of people's stories go something like this. I feel like I'm stuck. I feel like, I feel like I'm frozen. I can't move on. And when we're hearing these stories, there's another word, another term that we hear from time to time that gives rise to today's talk. And that is people will say, I feel trapped. What they mean is they can't move, but they feel like something has trapped them. I gave a lot of thought to that as I got ready for this message. And I thought, well, I don't know much about trapping, but from what I do know about trapping, there are two phases of it. When the animal is in the state of being trapped, the first phase of it is there's bait. And the animal wants the bait. There's something about that bait that's very attractive to the animal. But at this point in the first phase, the animal still has freedom. Doesn't have the bait yet, but he has freedom. And then in the second phase, the animal goes after the bait, and he has the bait, but he doesn't have freedom anymore. That's one kind of trap. But many years ago when I was a young minister, I heard a story of a monkey trap. Monkey trap works on a completely different principle. I'm not sure why people want to trap monkeys. But I understand in some parts of the world, they're a great delicacy, and they sell for a lot of money per ounce. And at first, when I heard this story, I thought, well, I'm not really sure it's true. But the more I began to read, the more I discovered that, yes, indeed, it is true. And it's done in various places in the world, and it's done in, certain, in, in various ways. But there's a certain principle that underlies all, all monkey traps. And so let me do my best to try to explain it to you, and I'll tell you about the, the one that I first read about. When, when a monkey's being trapped, they'll take a, a, a narrow cylinder of some kind. And with a leather cord or leather thong, they will attach it to something secure. And put something inside that little cylinder, that little vase, that a monkey wants. It could be something shiny to attract them. It could be food. It could be rice. Right? They use rice in certain parts of the world. But anyway, it's something that a monkey wants. And it's slender. So the monkey has to reach down with his hand like this in order to get what he wants. But at the moment that he closes his fist, he's got a problem. He can't pull his hand out because his fist is so large that it's too big for the cylinder and he can't pull it out. Now, the thing about it is you and I understand at any moment that monkey could walk away from the trap. It's very different from the other kind of traps because, you see, the two things that are essential for another kind, the other kind of trap is bait and something to retain the animal after the animal is sadder but wiser. But with a monkey trap, a monkey at any moment could walk away. All he has to do is release his hand, release what he's got his hand around, and slip it back out just like he put it in. But according to those who are experts in this area, monkeys won't release what they have their hand around, and they will stay there until somebody comes along and collects the monkey. See, here's the thing. The monkey is caught between two, two, two desires. On one hand, he wants whatever it is that's in there that he wants. And number two, he wants to be free. He's caught in between those two things. But neither one of those will be what kills him. What kills him is something inside. What kills him is stubbornness. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that a lot of us get into the first kind of trap. Satan lures us. He traps us. He tempts us with something that we want. And then he holds on to us. And we, we wish we'd never gotten into it, but we don't know how to get out of it. Yeah, that happens to us. And we'll talk about that sometime. But as I thought about my own life and the people that I've ministered to through the years, I thought more of us than we probably would want to admit get caught in a monkey trap. There's something that we want. And even though we realize there's danger involved, we don't want to let go of whatever it is, and we wind up in stubbornness. Let me give you this on a simple application. 
I remember, I think it was in 1993, I was speaking at an international missions conference in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we had a tour bus in those days, our church did, and a whole bunch of people from the church decided that they wanted to go to this international conference on missions and, and hear me speak and, and be part of the conference. And they kept coming back to the conference center and telling me that late at night they would make a run to a donut place and that I ought to go too. But I was too exhausted, and I thought one donut place is like another place. But I did hear the name Krispy Kreme. <laughs> and they came back and talked about it like it was a new religion. <laughs> well, the next year, I was preaching in Washington, D.C. at a church. And um, actually, Dan Kubish is our missions pastor and kids pastor. And one of our board members, Jesse Looper, who is now a missionary in Oklahoma, they decided they'd fly up with me. And so I was preaching at this large church in Washington, and the staff laid it, because the services were over late. I mean, I would speak, and then after I would speak, I would be there, and a line of people would come by to meet me, and I'd sign Bibles and this kind of thing. And so I wasn't even getting away from the church until like 9.30 or 10, but the staff kept coming and saying, we need to go to Krispy Kreme. And so we, all of us piled into this gray church van, unmarked, in suits, and we took off, and we had to drive like 30 miles across Washington, D.C. to this scary area. The only thing open was this Krispy Kreme. And when we got there, I looked at it, and it looked, I mean, it, it, was, it was one of those elderly Krispy Kremes, like first generation, like built right after Noah got off the ark. <laughs> I mean, the place looked, looked cruddy. And, and here we are, like 12 of us, piling out of this church van. It looked like a drug raid going down. But I remember walking in, and, the, and just this wet, tidal wave of sugar came over me. And this was one of those in the old school Krispy Kremes where they had the conveyor belt right out there in front of you, and you could see the donuts like going down the Krispy Kreme conveyor belt, and then they would drop into the sugar. And I didn't know what a religion it was till another kid came in, and he, I promise you, this is what he said. He said, I want, I want eight dozen and no tape on the first box. That's true. And I thought, this is a religion. But I never will forget the first time I had one of those Krispy Kreme donuts in my mouth, and I thought, this is different from anything I ever experienced. I'm talking about one of those hot ones that just, you know, came out of the sugar. But, you know, from that point on, I didn't have to worry about it because the only time there was a Krispy Kreme was when I was traveling and speaking somewhere. I ate one every once in a while. And then they decided to do something totally evil and put one in Wichita on Central. <laughs> and it's there, and the light calls to me. <laughs> I think I told you the story about the guy, the very spiritual, hyper-spiritual guy, and he said, he was driving past Krispy Kreme on Central, and he said, I don't know if it's God's will for me to have a donut or not. He decided he'd pray about it. He said, God, I don't know if it's your will or not for me to have a donut. He said, listen, if it's your will for me to have a donut, let there be a parking place. <laughs> he said, sure enough, on the 12th time around, there was a parking place. <laughs> Here's the thing. When I see that, those lights on, I'm caught in between two things. I want the sugar and I want to be healthy. Neither one will kill me. But if I start going on my way, in my way to the office here, if I start going by Central every day, by Krispy Kreme and going in, that will kill me. See, that's stubbornness. 
Now, that's, we'd laugh and joke about that, but I can tell you other situations that aren't funny at all. This next situation is a true story, but I could, it's happened hundreds of times in my life, and it's both genders. I know a man. He's a nice guy. I like him. He's, in the, he's got a wonderful marriage, wonderful wife. But somebody at work tempted him. You know, he just kind of like started chasing after it. And you know what? His wife loves him very much, and she would have forgiven him. And she would have rebuilt the marriage. But it was like he doubled down. You know, the fact that he got tempted by a beautiful woman, hey, all of us guys, that could happen to us. That's not what killed him. And, and the fact that he, I'm sure, has a wonderful marriage, that, that's, that's a blessing to him. You know what's going to blow up his life? Something within him. It's a monkey trap. Stubbornness. He won't let go. There's a guy who came to our Saturday night service years ago, back when we only had one Saturday night service, and he asked for a meeting with me, and he sat down in my office, and was a well-dressed, educated young man, and he started telling me about what God was doing in his life in the service, and, and I could tell that clearly that as I've been bringing the message, God had been talking to him about things that need to be happening in his life. And, how, and, and there was, it was clear that God was pursuing him. And, and the first part of the conversation, he was, very, he was very gentle and soft toward God. But about the middle of the conversation, all of a sudden, there was a hardness that set in. And he began to tell me how that he was right to be an atheist and lecturing me on evolutionary psychology, which I read a lot about. And as an old debater, I'd be too happy to take that debate every day and twice on Sunday. You know what got me? He was caught in between. He was in a monkey trap. There was part of him that was attracted to God, but there was also a part of him that was reluctant to let go of a lifestyle where he could be his own God. And at any moment, he could have walked away and embraced God, but he was caught in a monkey trap, and he wouldn't let go. I want to talk for just a few moments today about stubbornness. And as I said to you in the first message in this series, I'm going to just show you six stories in the Bible about people who were trapped or stalled or stuck, and God helped them move on. Take your Bibles if you have one or if you have an electronic device. You can, you can check this out in, on your mobile phone if you have a mobile phone app. Uh, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter, chapter 5. But before you get there, I just want to talk for a moment about stubbornness because somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't really know that stubbornness is all that big of an issue. I mean, if you were going to talk about adultery or, you know, you're going to talk about killing somebody, that'd be a serious sin. But, man, stubbornness, all of us are stubborn. God knows we're stubborn. God knows my wife is stubborn. You know, really, how bad can stubbornness be? You want to know? You want to know how God feels about stubbornness? 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, For rebellion is as bad as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know there's nothing that God hates like idolatry, and yet God says stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. Why is stubbornness so bad? Hey, all of you old people, do you remember back when we used to do this? Well, the problem with stubbornness is it locks us in that position. All of us are going to be losers from time to time, but stubbornness doubles down and locks it. And so God doesn't want us to be there. So here's what I want to do. In 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to tell you a story about a guy who was in a monkey trap and he got out. Ready? Here we go. The guy's name, verse 1, is Naaman. 
Now, we're going to read some good things about Naaman. The first thing that we read about Naaman is he's a commander of the army. That means, and all of you who've been in the military know, they don't start giving you stars and stripes and insignia unless you work hard for it. Naaman had gone all the way to the top. He was commander-in-chief of the army. Then the second thing I love about this, the Bible says the Lord had been helping him. You know what? I'm talking to some of you here today, and you're not a God follower yet, and you just say, I'm not really sure if I want to interact with God. Too late. God's already interacting with you. Everything good in your life, God is doing. And the Bible says about Naaman that God was helping him. And then the king respected Naaman very much. That means that not only was he powerful and successful, but that means that his character was such. We talked about character in a recent series. His character was such that his king respected him. And then the Bible says Naaman was a brave soldier. Listen, guys, I never get into politics here at New Spring, but one thing I have zero time and tolerance for, and that is anyone who disrespects our men and women in uniform. I'm talking about people that put themselves in harm's way for us. Listen, you can disagree or agree with the politicians who put them there, but you should always respect men and women who put themselves in harm's way for us. And Naaman was a brave soldier. So I just sort of imagine him on parade. Can you see him? I mean, because he's not, you need to know he's not a Jewish person. The people of Israel were sinning against God by idolatry, so God was letting some other nations harass them. And one of those nations was the Syrians, and that's where Naaman was. And so I sort of see him on parade as he's going down the street. He's got his uniform on. He's got his insignia, his regalia. He's, you know, he's in the limo with the lights flashing and the flags waving and the confetti is coming down from all the tall buildings, and everybody's like, wow, it's Naaman. But when you read verse 1, the Bible says, although he was commander-in-chief of the army and God was helping him and his king respected him and he was a brave soldier, you come to this word, this conjunction, but he was a leper. See, in Naaman's house, where they had no parades, it was whispered quietly that something was wrong with Naaman. You're watching me in the North Auditorium and the South Auditorium here, watching me online or on television. I'm talking to you today. At work, everybody thinks you have everything together, but at home, where people know you, when all of your regalia and insignia is off, there is something very wrong. In Naaman's house, they whisper, he has leprosy. Oh, leprosy was the worst thing that could happen to you back in Bible days. It, didn't, it wasn't fatal necessarily, but you were going to die with it because you weren't going to get well. What would happen is a little skin lesion would come up. And you think, like we think, well, it'd go away, put some Neosporin on it. But then another skin lesion would come up, and after a while, the skin would be covered with these lesions. And, you know, one of the problems with leprosy, and in the Bible, it's interesting, leprosy is always depicted as a type of sin. I think one of the reasons is when a person had leprosy, it would attack the digits. It would attack the fingers and the toes, extremities, and they would lose sensitivity, lose feeling. There are stories of lepers that would put their hands in boiling water and not even know it. They would bang their foot against a wall and gash their foot. And so oftentimes what would happen is over time, lepers would actually begin to lose their fingers and toes because of the disease. And then on top of that, there were oozing sores that came out. And it was not only a disease that was horrible and eventually would claim the life, it was a disease that was a social stigma. 
If you've read the New Testament, you know how that lepers in Jesus' day could not be in society. They had to withdraw and be by themselves. And if a leper came across somebody who was healthy, a leper would have to cry out, unclean. Ooh. It would be one thing to have to cry out, sick, I'm sick, but it's something else to have to say, I'm unclean. It's interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus healed all kinds of people, but it says he cleansed lepers. And then his name and situation. He is sick with leprosy. Now, the most one of the most interesting things in the Bible takes place at this moment because, read it with me, in verse 2 it says, on raids, and that would be Naaman's army going into Israel, on raids, they had brought back a little girl from Israel. She became the servant of Naaman's wife. So she is in the house, and she knows that Naaman has leprosy. Can I get on a soapbox for a moment? I really believe one of the biggest problems with Christians is that we don't understand how much God loves people who are not like him. I don't think we understand how much God loves people who don't love him. And consequently, there are, and I hope this is not the truth at New Spring, but there are actually Christian people who actually see people who are not Christians as the enemies. And I cannot tell you what a big mistake that is. Because God wants a bigger family, not a smaller one. Well, anyway, think about this. This is a girl. I mean, she was ripped away from her family, taken away from her mom and dad, taken away into this country where she was made to serve the wife of the general. Now, here's the thing. If this little girl was like a lot of Christians I know, and she found out that Naaman, the guy who was responsible for her being taken into captivity, had leprosy, she'd like a lot of Christians. She would have said, praise God. God got that guy. God's going to kill that guy. He is getting even with him. Yeah, I'm glad she wasn't like that. Look at what happened. This little girl said, if only my master, she told her mistress, if only my master were with a prophet in Israel, Syria, uh, Samaria, then the prophet would cure him of his disease. Now, I, I'm running short of time today, and I really shouldn't take the time to do this, but i got to tell you something. Never underestimate the faith of a child. That's why kids' ministry at New Spring is always job one. Because sometimes kids have faith that can blow us adults out of the water. I know this about this particular situation because Jesus referenced it about 600 years later. Jesus said that there were no other people cured of leprosy in Israel except Naaman. Now, you do the math with me. When this little girl said to her boss's wife, if my master was in Israel, the prophet there could cure him of leprosy, she was saying that something could happen that she had never seen, nobody else had ever seen. That's powerful to me. Well, anyway, they're in Syria, and they don't know a whole lot about the way God works there, and it's kind of clunky. But anyway, Naaman goes in to see the boss, his king, the king of Syria, and said, you know, I don't know if there's anything to this. I kind of doubt it, but a little girl that we took away captive works for my wife. She said that um, there's a holy man over there in Israel. He can cure me. And he said, you know, I'm not getting any better. So the king of Syria got together with Naaman and said, okay, let's put together a big old present. You know, uh, the king of Israel is scared of us already, but let's get some, let's get some cash together and uh, take it over there. So they did. They got together. I checked this with the price of gold with Friday's clothes. They got together $3 million in gold. They got together about a quarter million dollars in silver and some nice clothes. 
And so now Naaman and his posse go over to Israel. There they are in their motorcade. They go up to Israel. They go over to Israel and all things. The last place they should go. They go to the king. Joram is not walking with God. He's a mess anyway. He's the reason why God's letting Israel be kicked around. But they, they pull up to the palace and they say, you know, Naaman goes into the palace and he sees the king of Israel and he has a note from his boss, the king of Syria, and it says, heal my guy. Here's some Here's some money. And the king freaks out, and he's thinking, I don't know how to heal this guy. I can't cure anybody of leprosy. King says, the, the king of Syria is just trying to pick a fight with me. But Elisha, who is the man of God, hears about this, and he says to the king, don't freak out. Just send him down to me. Man, I hope God keeps all this on videotape, because now you see this motorcade, lights, flashing flags, pulling up into Elisha's subdivision. And he gets out to in front of the house, and Elisha sees him out his window. And he tells his servant, Gehazi, okay, just go outside and tell him to go dip in, dip in the Jordan River seven times. It'll be okay. And this is where Naaman gets in a monkey trap. See, he's out there with all his men, and he's out there with all of his money. And this holy man doesn't even come outside. And he just says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Now, the Jordan River is a muddy mess. See, the Jordan River is about 200 miles long, but really, I mean, it's only like 120 miles north to south. It just keeps snaking like this, and it drops 2,300 feet in elevation, so it's rushing faster and faster and churns up all this silt, and it's just, it's just a muddy mess. And Naaman hears this. And Naaman's saying, you know, we, we, got, we got rivers in Syria that are crystal clear. If this is about dipping in a river, hey, I can do better. Let's read. But Naaman became angry, and he stalked away. Okay, watch my fingers. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy. Do some kind of mojo. I did, that's not in there. <laughs> and call on the name of the Lord as God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, the far part better, better than the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them? Naaman was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm so mad. I thought he was going to come out here. And heal me. And then I thought, I knew how he was going to do it. I expected him to wave his hand over me. That's the way I thought it would go down. And hey, my ideas are better. My rivers are better than theirs. Listen, guys, I grew up in high school and college. I was a debater. And not only did I do debate, I also judged debate. Judged a lot of debates. Actually, that's how I met Mary Alice. I was judging a debate when I was in high school. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Just hearing Naaman's, you know, I, I just if, if, if this thing comes down to a debate and Naaman is saying, I thought he would come out here and see me. I hear him. I mean, Naaman's an important guy. And he, and he came a long way. And he brought a lot of money. I, I thought, I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm going to give him that point. And then Naaman said, I expected him to like come out and do this sort of religion-y kind of thing. And, and I hear him on that. I, I'll give him that point. And as far as the water, the, the, the Abana, the Farpar River's being cleaner and clearer than the River of Jordan, I got to give him that point. You know what? The weird thing about it is, I guess 
he would win the debate. But he's going to go home with his leprosy. I thought I expected my ways better. That is the mantra of stubbornness. I'm talking to a man here today. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, your wife didn't talk to me. But your marriage is about to go down the tubes. And if I could talk to you, you would want to make your case. I thought when I got married, things would be like I want them to be. And I had certain expectations. And my way is better than my wife's. I'm so much smarter than she is. You know what? I'd have to give you the debate, but you're going to lose your marriage. I'm talking to somebody here at work. You've already been written up your own probation already. And if I talked to you, you would tell me, I thought when I went to work for that company, I thought this is how it was going to be. And I had certain expectations that were going to be met. And I am so much smarter than my boss. And if I listen to you, I probably agree with you. I give you the debate, but you're going to lose your job. I'm talking to somebody here, and you're self-medicating. And if I talked to you, you would tell me, hey, you know what? The way I look at it, the way I think about it, everybody's doing it. And it's just how things are done. All my friends do it. And Friday, that's just how we get loose. And I, you know what? I expect to feel good. I expect that I should be, I, should, I think God wants me to be happy. God wants me to feel good. I expect to feel good. And you know what? It's none of your business anyway. It's, it's my life. Well, in 21st century America, you'd win the debate. It's going to blow up your life. And we could go on and on. We could talk about anger and we could talk about unforgiveness and all the other things that we're stubborn about. And you know what? If somebody polled us or asked us about it, we would tell them what we thought and what we had a right to expect and how our way is better. And we will just stand there in the monkey trap until somebody comes and harvests us. When Naaman... Oh, we understand how he feels the way he feels, but he's got leprosy. You know, the biggest issue, and, and, and Lord knows I care about your marriage, and I care about your job, and I care about your health, and all those things that we talked about, but there's a bigger issue than any of those things, and that has to do with going to heaven. Do you, do you know, here's the thing about going to heaven, is that if you try to figure out how to go to heaven on your own, you will never get there. And let me show you, uh, hey, listen, that's not my saying this. This is what the Bible says. Let me read a couple of verses to you. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost. That's the group that can least afford that. But for us who are being saved, it's God's power. For God in his wisdom made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of the so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. Now listen, if you want to know how to go to heaven, according to the Bible, it goes down like this. You and I are sinners. We're bankrupt. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So Jesus came, and he pinched hit, and he pinched run, pinch run in our place, and he died on the cross for us, and the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for all our sins. And anybody who comes to God and declares bankruptcy and believes that Jesus did for us what we can't do for ourselves has all their sins washed away, their names are written in the book of life, and they become God's child. Now, here's the thing. I know that sounds crazy. In fact, the Bible says it sounds like nonsense, right? 
And you know what? Some of us could say, well, I thought, I thought that I had to, to join a church. Or here's the one that I hear most often. I thought that I had to be a good person, and I think I am a pretty good person. I, I just thought all God cares about is that I'm, I'm sincere and I'm a nice person. I, I thought that's what it was. Then I had expectations that if I'm a pretty nice person, and even though I got my flaws and my faults, but if I'd be a pretty good person, my expectation was that God would, God would take me to heaven, take everybody like that to heaven when I die. And, you know, your idea, your thought about a bloody Jesus dying on a cross is not very attractive. Really, I, I think my way... Of being good to my neighbors and being a nice person, I think my way is better. And in the words of the movie title, that will drag you to hell. Not because at any moment you couldn't pull your hand out and walk away and receive Jesus. You go to hell because you say, I thought I expected and my way is better. In a monkey trap. Do you know, there's probably not a message I'm going to preach all year that I need as much as I need this message. I couldn't wait to hear what I was going to say. <laughs> because I can be stubborn. You know, one of the greatest blessings in my life has been the people in my life who will speak truth into me when I'm freaking out. You have anybody like that? You're rich. Well, Naaman, he's storming off. I thought I expected my ways better. And I love his guys who are with him, his officers, tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something hard, you'd have done it. Why not just do what, you, why not just do what the man of God said? And thankfully, Naaman did. He pulled his hand out of the monkey trap, and he went down to the muddy Jordan River. And the Bible says he dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Listen, it had absolutely nothing to do with the waters of the Jordan. It just had everything with, to do with Naaman humbling himself and doing it God's way. Who am I talking to today? It's sort of like being in a monkey trap. I thought it was religion, and I thought I was a Baptist, or I thought I was a Catholic or Buddhist, and I'm a nice person, and I expect God to just, like, take me to his heaven, and I think my way's better. And you've realized, hey, wait a minute. I could win the debate and walk away with my sin. If you're willing today, you can come to God and just talk to him. Because that's what God requires. You can't do anything to get yourself into heaven. You just receive a gift. The Bible says it is by grace that you're saved through faith, through believing. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of what you do. I don't want to leave this service even though I'm in overtime tonight, today. But I want to just give you a chance. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to get my hand out of the monkey trap and I want to really receive Jesus, then I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And I'm going to pray it slowly so that you can repeat it after me. I want you to be able to think about it and decide if you really want to say it because it, aren't the, it isn't the words that matter. What matters is your willingness to believe in your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> I believe you love me. 
I believe Jesus died for me on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sin. Would you forgive me? Would you make me your child? Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before you leave, if you just pray with me, I've got something I want to give you. If you'll go by guest services, either right out there in the lobby, and there's another one by the north entrance, all you got to do is just take your talk to us card. There's one in the back of the seat, or you got one when you came in. Just check the box, say, I pray with Mark. And if you will go to guest service, I promise you, they won't hassle you or mess with you in any way. They just want to give you this gift bag. It's got a Bible, a starting point Bible in it. It's got a book I wrote and just some stuff to help you take your first steps. So please, if you just pray with me, just go back to guest services and say, I pray with Mark, and they will give you this. May God bless you. Thank you for being here today.